This is Debenhams' flagship store in central London, uh, where, as you can see, the doors are still open. Some shoppers, at least, have been coming and going, but clearly not enough, uh, because it seems Debenhams' owners fear they may not be able to keep these doors open for much longer. As you heard there, department store retailer Debenhams has collapsed into administration, the victim of changing shopping trends, but also monstrous levels of debt. That debt was left to it by its previous private equity owners, and the group has become a poster child for all that's wrong with the private equity industry. As one banker described it, it was a bomb waiting to go off. And Debenhams hasn't been the only case of so-called value extraction by private equity owners. Look no further than Aston Martin for a recent example. Aston Martin has posted a 7% fall in full-year pre-tax profit. The British automaker, which went public in 2018, cited one-off costs related to its IPO. 22.50, yeah, was the initial IPO price on the 3rd of October 2018. How wrong the sponsors got. Later on, we'll be hearing from Phil Oakley about why private equity IPOs make him nervous and why you should always pay extra scrutiny to PE-backed companies coming to market. Look at a business that presents a business to a seller, potentially the stock market, that is artificially profitable because it's been starved of investment, starved of cost, and try and get someone to pay a very high price for it and walk away. That's a very cynical view, but one, one that is backed up by plenty of, plenty of evidence. But does private equity deserve such a bad reputation? Dave and I will shortly be discussing why private equity warrants a place in investors' portfolios and how you can obtain that exposure. Indeed, for UK investors, it can often be the only way into some of the most exciting growth areas, not least technology, as James Norrington heard when he spoke Chief Executive of listed private company investor Augmentum Fintech. If you do want exposure and you believe that financial services is going to continue to go through this disruption over the next five to ten years, then there are very few routes available for you as a, uh, as a public market investor. I'm Dave Baxter. And I'm John Human. Welcome to the Investment Hour. So Dave, um, thanks for uh, hosting with me this week. You've written a big piece on private equity uh, for the magazine this week. And uh, I mean, it is one of those areas that, that, that can seem quite mysterious to the outside observers. But it's actually a really good diversifier in portfolios. And some, some of the performance stats you quote have been absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, private equity in some ways has been out of favour and, you know, mysterious, like you say. But actually, if you look at the um, investment trusts that focus on that um, that asset class, uh, look over 10 years. Um, if I look today, there are six names that have actually outperformed the S&P 500. So if you bear in mind, that is the, you know, the leading public equity market from the last decade, then those returns really stand out. Um, and you are you are getting a level of diversification in the sense that you're getting um, perhaps exposure to some of those growth stories you can't always now get on listed markets as they shrink. Um, and in that sense, um, it can potentially be a bit more defensive, um, especially now we're seeing, you know, healthcare and tech, for example, have stood out in what has been a really disastrous time for many companies this year. Um, private equity trusts tend to have um, decent exposures to both those sectors. So that will potentially hold up a bit better. Private equity does have a bit of a bad reputation, though, um, particularly when it comes to companies coming to market, as we alluded to there, and which Phil and I will talk about in a bit. Um, 
Are there risks that investors should be a bit more mindful of when looking at private equity trusts? Um, are there different different approaches to private equity that they should be looking uh, looking for, looking at tapping into? Um, I think you talk about three different types of PE fund in the piece. Can you talk us through what they are and, and, and what the sort of relative benefits and, and risks are? Yeah, sure. So um, they're very kind of cruise categories, these three, but I think they're quite useful as a, as a starting point. So... Um, First of all, you if you're kind of new to the sector, if you want something perhaps more diversified, you have trusts such as uh, Pantheon International. They are mainly um, fund of funds. So they will invest with a variety of different private equity funds. Um, that means that you're um, basically getting exposure to a larger number of kind of underlying holdings, large number of companies, and you're just getting a wider spread. Um, the kind of main drawback there is um, you can, because you're doing fund of funds, you're incurring more fund fees. You can kind of rack up bigger charges. And the charges can sometimes be quite hefty um, in private equity in I was, general. I was going to say, how do they compare to, say, you know, uh, just a, a sort of general investment trust? Yeah, it can be quite a bit higher. So if you were to look at an investment trust or a, a regular kind of fund focusing on listed equities, then... Uh, I mean, it's fairly subjective, but once you get, generally, once you tend to get past, um, say, the kind of 1% mark, you need to, you need to justify it with either really good returns or the fact it's kind of focusing on a specialism. Um, And with kind of private equity, you are going to be moving into this kind of higher end of returns. Um, So if you're choosing, you know, the fund of funds, then you are going to rack up more of that. And that potentially will drag on the at least the underlying returns. So that could affect what happens to your um, your share price on the trust. Um, so you have for the funds, um, then you have uh, direct invested trusts. Um, so they will they can do it in different forms, but they will uh, invest directly in companies. They will have more engagement with companies, um, and that's basically just greater risk and greater return. Um, some of these funds can be really concentrated. Um, I looked at one that had around 15 holdings. So, you know, if something goes incredibly well with one nose, then that's going to be a huge boost. But equally, things can't go wrong with these companies. Um, there are risks involved. And, um, you know, you're just kind of elevating that level of risk that you're exposed to. What's quite interesting, if you're um, if you're looking to pick between these funds, is arguably... Um, the directly invested funds can be easier if you're trying to do your own due diligence to analyze than the fund of funds because the fund of funds have their fund holdings and then you'd have to look at those funds themselves and then look at their holdings and there's a lot more to try and pack in and try and understand. Um, but if you are um, happy at risk, if you're kind of a bit braver, um, then with directly invested trusts, you can at least kind of... Um, with a bit less time and effort, kind of look at the what's actually in the portfolio and try and take it apart. You know, that that's something we would encourage investors to do when they're looking at sort of general equity funds. Look what the uh yeah. look what they're holding, look what the trust is holding. It seems like it might be a little bit harder to do with with private equity uh trusts. It is. There what's interesting is if you for example, if you look at their fact sheets, um funds generally tend to produce those updates either monthly or at least kind of quarterly. On, I guess, kind of at a glance, 
they actually do seem to provide more information sometimes than your bog standard equity fund. But the problem is there are so many moving parts. So there are different ways to invest. Um, for example, with direct investment, you can go in on your own or you can do uh, co-investments. So you you see a, a company that another private equity specialist is investing and you basically invest alongside um them and there are all sorts of kind of different metrics that you have to um, try and get your head around like the the maturity of the companies for example uh, beyond just what you might look at with um, a standard kind of listed equity fund which is you know your sector exposures the individual companies that kind of thing and I suppose also you just have the issue of it, it sometimes being a bit harder to dig into these companies because there is um, with listed companies there is a a high level of um, kind of disclosure. So you you get a lot to pick apart and then you potentially have more coverage from specialists as well that you can bear in mind, whereas these private companies just aren't as well covered. Um, so yeah, that is an issue. Does that, does that affect how we look at their valuation? So, you know, we in the public markets we we know what a share is worth we know then how that relates to the um to the to the NAV uh of uh, of a trust and and therefore the relationship of that NAV to its share price that seems like it might be a little more, bit more difficult in private equity world i mean what what, what do they look like in terms of valuation discount uh, and and how those valuations calculated yeah so the the valuations are um partly calculated in relation to um things like earnings multiples in the listed sector. So you can perhaps get a gist of um, how the underlying portfolio might hold up by kind of what sectors is exposed to. But it is really important point that you raise and something we've uh, discussed a lot in the, the recent piece is um, at the minute, there's not actually that much transparency on how the underlying portfolios is fed because with the NAV calculation, um, if you're, you know, listed company and if you hold listed companies then you'll get that information regularly and you can do that in kind of a timely fashion uh with private equity um it's different there's you know often when the trusts do updates their nev figures will be kind of out of date so at the minute um a lot of the figures are still based on um kind of 30th of march end of march valuations so we haven't really got a clear picture um, of how these trusts have fared through, um, I suppose, the kind of fuller phase of lockdown. Um, in terms of kind of prices, so, you know, trusts, it's always important to, at least for entry points, to look at how the shares are trading versus the NEV. Um, and the vast majority of the private equity trusts are on big, you know, double digit discounts to NEV. So if you were to just look at that, you might think, you know, 25% discount, fantastic. I can get them really cheaply. But the problem is we, so far, we just don't really know what's priced in. We don't know how much these companies um, inside the trusts have kind of struggled or whether they've actually been a bit more resilient than we expect. Um, and we'll have to wait, uh, I suppose, for the coming kind of weeks and months and throughout this year to just get a bit of a fuller picture. Um, but I, I guess an interesting counter argument you, you can make is this is, uh, this worry is perhaps more in relation to um, entry points. So is it a good time to get in now? But as we discussed, these trusts, a lot of these trusts have done very well over the longer term. Um, so I, I think it's probably, it's a pressing concern if you're thinking about the asset class now and if you're thinking, you know, do I, do I want to jump in? 
um, while those discounts are really wide. I mean, it, it does seem like people should be thinking more about private equity uh, as something they should perhaps hold. I mean, there's some, there's some really remarkable mm. figures that you uh, you cite at the beginning of the piece um, around the number of publicly listed companies and how, how much mm. it's falling. You know, is this trend of companies staying private um, something that you think might continue? And, and if so, you know, should um, investors be thinking that they should get exposure to this trend? Definitely, yeah. I mean, you, I can't see any reason why the trend won't continue because you have, for example, kind of tech companies, uh, certain growth sectors, they don't need as much capital, so they could perhaps just get private funding. And, you know, there are many onerous burdens associated with going public um, and you're, I suppose, much more subject to the whims of the market and to, you know, people focusing on how you've done in one qu- quarter versus the last, that kind of thing. Um so I, I would definitely expect that to continue. And um, I think that's why private equity is important, because some of these growth stories you may have been able to access via public markets before aren't going to be there. Um, so you're, if you want to keep getting that sort of growth kick into your portfolio, then private equity is going to be really useful. Um, but it it is interesting to think about the role that it has. And I think it is kind of growth. Um, it may be more resilient at times than kind of listed equities, but I I would say you probably shouldn't think of it as so much a diversifier just because it's kind of an alternative asset class because it's it will still be subject to um, economic difficulties or if there are problems in listed markets, that will basically feed in potentially into the kind of valuations you get on private companies. I mean, one of the ways that private equity companies make money was by floating uh, their holdings back onto the market. If that trend that, that that's actually not happening, I mean, how how do they exit? You know, what what, yeah. what what's the mechanism by which they make that return that which they would otherwise have made by floating some uh, one of their holdings on the market? Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, it's just the only other option would be to sell privately, I suppose. So, yeah, maybe you are still going to see that kind of arrival of companies on public markets. Um, I guess what's interesting is how long it takes as well, because um, one reason or, you know, one thing that's been attributed to public markets isn't just companies not choosing to list. It's the fact that some companies just wait longer until they list. So we're we're seeing more of a drag. um, And I suppose potentially that means you're missing out on some of that growth before they actually list. Yeah, we are seeing uh, some some big unicorns potentially coming to market soon, Airbnb. Um, mm. The flotation has been talked about. We work before that all went very wrong. Uh, oh, yeah. It had been talked about <laughs> as a flotation. So, so you know, the, the, yeah, I, 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 they are, I guess, still looking at public markets as an exit. But I think you're right that uh, they want to hang on to more of that growth themselves. Yeah, definitely. There was one other question. I mean, we talked about some heavy discounts in the sector um, mm. to NAV. Um, yeah. What, what explains the, the two trusts that are trading at quite chunky premiums here? So we've got 3i which is uh, obviously yep. well-known, a uh, member of the FTSE 100 and HG Capital Trust. Both are trading at premiums. What, what, what's the difference there? Yeah, um, so 3i is, is a very strange beast in general um, because it's not people don't always view it as a, as a strictly dedicated private equity thing because it has, you know, for example, infrastructure, that kind of thing. But um, 3i in part has done well because it's it has huge exposure to a, a company called Action, which is a, a European non-food discount retailer that's done very well um, in in recent years. 
So that, uh, when I looked at figures recently, that was on something like a 15% premium. Um, but I, as I said, that's a, that's a slightly strange vehicle um, for various reasons, including the fact it's kind of seen as a, a proxy on private equity. So, you know, one person said to me, you, you can essentially get ETFs trading in and out of it. And you, it, it might move in a, an exaggerated fashion based on what people think about um, the private equity space overall. Um, the more interesting one, the premium, um, is HG Capital, which has recently was on a smaller premium of uh, around 5%. Um, you can kind of understand its premium because it's it's basically evolved into a pure play on software and services related to software. Um, and it does that across a, a whole variety of sectors. Um, but... Um, you know, it's, it's essentially a kind of tech play. It has, um, you know, big kind of structural drivers behind it. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's done very well. It seems to have proven reasonably kind of resilient so far. Um, so you, you can see with, as we've seen in listed markets, you can see why people are trying to grab on to those stories where they actually think trends are being um, accelerated by the lockdown rather than, you know, companies elsewhere facing existential crises. Um, so that, that's one to watch potentially. I think we've got an interview lined up with them in a few weeks. So it'll be interesting to hear what they have to say. Um, thanks, Dave. Um, so we, we've heard about the types of exposure you can get through private equity, including technology. Now we're going to hear about one particularly exciting area, fintech, uh, and how one investor is targeting this growth area. James Norrington has spoken to Tim Levine, chief exec of Augmentum Fintech. I'm James Norrington, specialist writer at Investors Chronicle, and today I'm joined by Tim Levine, partner and CEO of Augmentum Fintech, a £135 million market cap investment trust that gives investors in public markets access to UK and European opportunities in the exciting and fast-growing world of fintech. Welcome, Tim, and thanks for joining us. James, thank you. Good to be here. Now, uh, your holdings, they include um, businesses such as Interactive Investor, an investment platform, Bullion Vault, a platform for investing in gold and silver. Uh, these are businesses that, that you, know, I, you know, I've known Interactive Investor for a while. I wouldn't necessarily think of them as, as fintech, but you also hold, um, hold investments such as Tide, a small and medium enterprise business lender, Moneys, a mobile banking app, which probably would fit no, more, more my sort of a layman's appreciation of what a fintech would be. So just in context of your holdings, how do you define fintech and, and what meets your criteria for inclusion in the augmentum portfolio? So I, no question that fintech has become a pretty broad church uh, over recent years. Um, and it could mean uh, for many uh, very different things. I think for us, we are looking at digitally led businesses that are fundamentally disrupting or disintermediating traditional financial services, um, often offering consumers um, or businesses compelling uh, digital propositions um, with a product set and, a, and at a price that makes them uh, you know, the market leader. Um, clearly, we've got uh, a number of different companies across the portfolio, across a number of different verticals within uh, financial services as well. And I think what's important for us as an investor is to be backing some quite early, high potential propositions that have a long way to go, but are growing at an incredibly fast rate. But there's clearly some risk associated with that. But also uh, backing uh, some established um, digitally led fintech propositions that are, you know, in uh, interactive uh, and bullion vault cases, profitable businesses, still growing, uh, still have some some exciting prospects ahead of them. 
but they've been somewhat de-risked uh, and in some cases might be closer to that path uh, to exit um, for, uh, for our investors. So I think it's important for us to have that uh, blend. Um, you know, really, we are looking for category leaders as well. If you look at Bullion Vault's case, you know, they are the leading online digital investment platform for precious metals. Uh, I'd argue Interactive Investor in the last two to three years, although uh, it's been around for a long time. It was a bit of a sleeping uh, digital dinosaur, to be perfectly blunt, when we first invested. But we felt there was an opportunity uh, for a digitally-led platform uh, to really consolidate and take market leadership, both in product but also in price innovation as well. Uh, and I think they've gone from, certainly when we invested back in 2014, from about a billion or so of assets to 36 billion of assets on the platform. And they really have become... Uh, in our eyes, the leading challenger uh, to Hargreaves Lansdowne, who, uh, you know, many would not call kind of a digitally led uh, forward thinking business in uh, in the true fintech uh, uh, regard. So, you know, whether it's Tide in uh, SME platform, whether it's Moneys in uh, offering to expats and, uh, and immigrants a uh, um, a consumer-led banking platform, whether it's on Fido, in AI facial recognition for onboarding, um, uh, as well as kind of the likes of Interactive Investor and and Bullionville, and also Habito as well, who are the leading digital mortgage uh, broking platform. Um, You know, we, if if I look across the portfolio and I look at the different uh, subsectors that they're operating in, I would expect them to be, you know, the leading or um, maybe the number two challenger in that space, and I think that's incredibly important. What's your um, sort of time frame with with your exit strategy? And, and just sort of in the context, it's been um, we talk about sort of a, a liquidity is an issue with off exchange investments. It has been. It's been a crazy year, of course. Um, I think your share price sold off more heavily than the market during the crash, um, which perhaps maybe reflects some of that anxiety investors have about liquidity. But but then uh, on the flip side, you've come back very strongly. The shares now trade at very close to the NAV, no longer really trading at much of a discount. Um, so what does that say about investors' appetite for fintech growth? And then and then how are you looking at an, ex, um, an exit strategy for some of the businesses you hold to realize some of that? So I think what we offer investors, and I think what has uh, you know, led us to really build out uh, a strong retail investor following past uh, 12 to 18 months has been a recognition that fintech really is no longer a you know a buzzword or or, or overhyped clearly we are uh, beyond the proof point of course there are a number of propositions that aren't going to make it and there are a number that have become very meaningful businesses i think investors have had a chance since ipo just over two years ago to have a look at what we said we were going to do uh, and then really uh, taken a closer look to say, have we done uh, you know, what we hope to do in the first two years? And I think we've built that diversified portfolio across a number of subsectors, across a number of different stages as well. Um, and I think they recognize that there's a real mix and, and blend there. And I think if you want exposure to what is an incredibly exciting asset class in the public markets, you're pretty limited. Um, and I think, one, what's really important is diversification. And two, it's quite unusual for a venture capital fund to be publicly listed. Usually they are, uh, you know, under a traditional what's called a GPLP structure. And they're often the preserve of, you know, large institutional investors, endowments, uh, traditional limited partners who have the ability to get exposure to some of the very best opportunities um, in, uh, in venture capital globally. And the retail investor has really been left out of that. 
think we really wanted to democratize that access. And I think it's really differentiated if you do want exposure and you believe that financial services is going to continue to go through this disruption over the next five to 10 years, then there are very few routes available for you as a, uh, as a public market investor. And even when those companies are getting to the public, the public market, they are few and far between. I think what we're seeing is companies are staying private for longer. And if I look at the fintech exits over the last couple of years, only 5% of those have come through IPO. So even if you look at the 5% of companies that get to IPO, they're coming much later than they did historically, which means the investor is getting uh, there much later, missing a lot of that growth journey. But also, they're only getting a fraction of that opportunity. Uh, and I think, you know, for us, providing that indirect opportunity across a portfolio uh, of assets where, you know, frankly, we see a, a huge amount in the market. It's our job to have coverage uh, across the whole European fintech sector by stage. Um, and we'd like to think that, um, you know, we have a very strong filter uh, and we get into some of the most exciting opportunities uh, in the market. And I think that there's been a recognition. I think answering the question on uh, volatility of share price, I mean, we can't necessarily control that. Of course, us like others, um, you know, in the height of COVID, you know, saw a, um, a pretty significant sell-off. But I think if you look at the volume, really, there was not significant volume. And I think, you know, since then, we've recovered. Uh, we're trading now at, uh, at NAV. Um, and I think, again, there's a rec recognition from uh, the investment community that they're looking for propositions where there's really strong future growth opportunities. And I'd like to think that we provide, you know, a, a compelling option in that regard. So with um, competition, both for, for good opportunities for, for you as an investor, but also in, in terms of um, the scope that the, the companies that you invest in are of, of being disruptive, um, so there's several it's a, several big players in this space and who are going to get more and more involved. I mean, you have um, big banks, which, um, which you know, are they going to run scared or are they going to end up buying up technology to, to, to improve their offering? Uh, will the big tech firms come in and clean up? Um, if you look at something like payments, we already have Apple and Google Pay who offer higher limits on tap purchases and debit cards, for example. So, so it could be another area where the ubiquity of big tech is, is growing. And you also look at, at some of the acquisitions made by big payments companies, Visa bought Played, MasterCard, um, buys Finicity, both financial data plays. As a space, I mean, the disruptive potential of smaller firms, is this diminished by, by the competition from the big boys buying up the best opportunities? And, and, um, and how do you see the ecosystem evolving? Well, I think we've seen uh, the ecosystem come a long way um, in the last decade since we uh, started. Uh, there's no question there is increasingly more capital uh, from a variety of different pockets. I think it presents um, a variety of exit opportunities for these fintechs. There's no question that the incumbents are becoming increasingly active, uh, not only as direct investors, but also um, recognizing that there are fintechs out there that either pose a uh, existential threat or could be complementary to you know, some of the challenges that uh, they have and can be potential solutions as well. And I don't think it's a question of the fintechs are going to win or the incumbents are going to win. I think you know, there'll, be, there'll be winners and losers uh, along the way. Um, I think what we've always talked about has been the increasing expectation of uh, acquisitive behavior by not only um, 
the big banks and insurers, but also uh, tech businesses looking to get a foothold in financial services. And I think um, you know, a good example of that was Finicity, uh, acquisition by MasterCard. Obviously, um, you know, Apple and Google and, and Amazon are all looking closely um, at the financial services space. If it was easy to build very large businesses, they would be doing it um, already. And I think they've been quite wary um, I think one of those reasons has been, you know, the challenges of uh, regulation. You know, these are heavily regulated financial services uh, businesses, and not necessarily uh, in line, um, you know, with the nimble um, attitude that, that, you know, the likes of, you know, Amazon, uh, you know, Uber, Google, you know, might want to uh, might want to adopt. So, I think that they've dipped their toe in cautiously. They clearly recognise a huge opportunity there. I think you will see more uh, acquisitive behaviour over the coming. Uh, three or four years. The obvious question, and we often get asked this by uh, prospective and existing investors, is how can you compete with a large bank who has massive balance sheet, tens of thousands of employees? Surely they have the technical capability internally uh, to be able to build what some of the companies that you've invested in have built. And I think you know, the, you know, the, the honest answer is these are slow-moving oil tankers with huge challenges, both through uh, legacy technology stacks, with other distractions, many of which are regulatory. They have multiple priorities. Um, There's enormous complexity in these businesses. The ability to move quickly, uh, adapt their product set, build new tech is extraordinarily hard. And I think the competitive advantage of these fintechs, and I think the reason that we've seen some uh, fintechs get to true scale already uh, in a short period of time, is that they can be maniacally focused on building something that the customer wants. Uh, they can price it uh, accordingly. They don't have this you know, significant uh, cost base to contend with. Um, and they can compete head on uh, with a better product that gives a consumer better choice, uh, a better experience at a lower price. And I think it's very hard in some cases for you know, the large incumbents to be able to compete with that. And I think there is a recognition that despite the billions of pounds that have been spent over the last decade uh, in innovation uh, by the big financial institutions, more than half of that has gone on propping up what is, uh, in all intents and purposes, uh, a, uh, a challenging uh, legacy technology stack. So, you know, the, these are, on the surface, you would think that uh, the big, uh, you know, big businesses can compete. In many areas, they really are challenged, and I think, the way that they can uh, catch up. Uh, and I think you will see that, and you've seen it with the likes of Visa buying Plaid for $5.5 billion and uh, MasterCard buying Finicity for near, near on a billion. Uh, they just want to buy these businesses uh, because there is a, one, they do pose a competitive threat, and two, the threat of their competition acquiring uh, the IP uh, you know, presents a, a challenge for them as well. Going back to, to this idea of regulation, financial regulation, um, and, and also the ecosystem and, and the speed with which fin, fintechs can, can develop and innovate, um, we, the, the business did get a bit of a knock with, uh, with the Wirecard scandal where a lot of fintechs were relying on their infrastructure. What's the likelihood of that scenario coming up again repeatedly? A lot of these fast-growing companies have probably built on one another's infrastructure and platforms. Um, and how does it affect the way you as a fintech investor do due diligence on the firms that, that you're looking to bring into your portfolio? Yeah, I think the, the Wirecard scenario is a... Um is an extreme case. I mean, clearly there's um, significant 
uh, questions of fraud there. And I think um, whether you define them as a payments platform uh, or as a fintech, uh, it's somewhat irrelevant there. Their customer base cut across uh, every industry of which fintech was one. Um, certainly amongst our portfolio, we, we had portfolio companies uh, had any reliance on them. Um, and I would say very few kind of UK fintechs of scale uh, had any uh, had any real reliance. But clearly for Germany, this is, uh, uh, you know, this is a major, uh, this has become a major issue. And I think, you know, we're only uh, at the beginning of the story uh, in that regard. So, you know, ultimately, this is, it's not a fintech failure. This is a failure of the regulators, to be perfectly honest. Um, and the auditors um, doing a good enough job to, uh, you know, to identify that there were some pretty significant weaknesses. It shouldn't have come as a big surprise. There was a lot of smoke in regards to this for the last two or three years. Um, you only need to point to the FT work that, that was being done to recognize that there were some the real concerns there. And I think, you know, the general question is, of course, you know, for us doing due diligence uh, in every deal uh, is exceptionally important. Uh, you know, when we're backing uh, a business that's quite young, two or three years old, there isn't a huge amount of history uh, in that business. The the due diligence is not overly complex because often their you know, their revenues might uh, you know only be 12 months old. So, ultimately, for us, we're looking for not only an exceptional idea and exceptional opportunity, but we're looking for an exceptional team that can act, uh, that can actually execute on on that proposition. So, I don't think it poses any type of existential threat for uh, for the industry. Uh, I think it's just one very bad apple um, that, um, you know, that's incredibly unfortunate and, and a great shame for the, for the German financial services industry. Um, but speaking back to, um, you know, to, to the issue of board, how involved you get with the board? I mean, it was quite interesting to see um, recently at Monzo Bank, um, Tom Blomfield, who was sort of the founder, um, is, is no longer the, the CEO that he stepped down to become president. And they have a, a more experienced, the head of US, um, a, a sort of a more experienced banking man is now, in, is now sort of being the CEO. Um, what's your sort of policy with regard to involvement in management of the companies that you invest in? Um, and, are, you know, how do you sort of look to set the balance of, of passion of founders and experience in, in terms of people who sort of know the ropes of running a company and the interest of investors? Yeah, I think one of our competitive advantages in the market that stands us out is that we have been operators and entrepreneurs in the past. So I think that experience resonates, but also we've spent the last decade adapting uh, and learning how to become investors and, and value-added investors uh, as well. And I think, uh, you know, for us, uh, it's a must to have an active involvement in our businesses. And so we will typically take a take a board seat because, frankly, we want the companies not only to want to take our capital, but also want to uh, learn from the benefit of our experience. Uh, we want to work with them. We want to collaborate and we want to try and preempt some of the challenges that, that they will have. I think when you have a portfolio of, uh, you know, 20 odd businesses and you've you know, worked with uh, tens of companies over the years, a lot of the challenges and the problems that businesses face when they scale are similar. Uh, and you've got to kind of leverage the benefit of your learning, um, you know, across the board. There, there are common problems. And so, you know, I think we know when we can add value. We know where we feel we can help. And also we know when to step away. I think there's always a challenge with governance. And I think in terms of, you know, when you have heavily regulated businesses, there's no question I would say you need more grown-ups uh, at the board table. But there is a time and often there's a time and, and a place for that. What you don't want to do uh, is create uh, an overly onerous governance structure 
that holds back a business from growth, uh, from challenging the status quo, from offering that proposition to customers that can really uh, change the norm. Um, but at the same time, you want to make sure that they're doing it in a sustainable uh, way. Uh, and you have the right people on the board that can that guide people. And I think when we think about boards, they evolve. They evolve by stages of businesses. Um, and I think from our point of view, uh, you know, I'd love to be in a position to step away from boards once they have that governance structure in, in place where we feel that there's uh, the right level of rigor. Um, and actually, the board meetings tend to become more governance-based. Uh, more focus on compliance, where, frankly, we believe um, we add less value. Um, but there's a journey to get from perhaps where a business such as Fairwill, which is you know the legit, leading digital uh, will and probate uh, provider, which has just kind of done its Series B round, but we invested when uh, when they were pretty young, uh, and you know I was the first um, you know investor board member on there to something like Zopa, which is now a fully licensed bank um, and has, you know, a significant board. And I would say um, the skill set required on that board right now and what they're looking for is not something where, uh, you know, we believe we can uh, add huge additional value. Um, and I think that's incredibly important. And we've seen the same with Interactive Investor. This is a really big business now, 35 billion plus of assets. Um, you know, we played a significant role getting it to that point. Um, but there's a time to step away. Uh, and for us as investors, we continue to have visibility on what the company is doing. We have a direct line to management. We engage with them. Um, but perhaps the value addition is not happening in board meetings, whereas in earlier companies, often that's the opportunity to work and sit with management and help drive strategy. Tim Levine, thank you very much for joining us today. Some fascinating insights. Thank you, James. Some of the companies we heard about there might come to market at some point. But as we've heard, Sometimes that doesn't work out so well for equity investors. We're now going to hear from Phil Oakley about what investors need to watch out for when private equity firms are using public markets as their exit route. So now I'm joined by Phil Oakley. Uh, how are you doing, Phil? All right. Thank you, John. All good, right. good, good. Um, so we've been talking about private equity and uh, its role within investors' portfolios, but, but we're going to talk about something slightly different, which we alluded to at the beginning of this podcast. And this is the performance of companies that have been backed by private equity that find their way onto the public markets. And I know that you've, uh, you've got some cynicism towards this approach because we have seen a number of really quite, uh, quite, quite bad blow-ups in this area. Uh, we have. I, you know... I, I am very cynical, based on experience, not just recent experience, um, my own professional experience many years ago being asked on a couple of occasions to by a corporate financier to have a look at businesses that were run by private equity um, that wanted to float on the ex on the stock exchange not just looking at the numbers looking at the accounts but actually going and having a look at them in in the flesh and walking away distinctly unimpressed and um refusing to uh, put my name to any research um that uh, would have would have told investors to buy them but they're not all bad Okay, well, let's 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 focus on your uh, the start of your experience. Then we'll turn to some recent examples, um, which I know you wrote about for the magazine. Um, what was it about those companies that you were uh, troubled by? Mainly the lack of investment. 
I mean, it's, it's useful to try and just give a backdrop of how how private equity managers think. They they look at they look at something what's called an internal rate of return on their investment. So they take the equity that they invest in a business, and often there's not a lot of equity, but perhaps a lot of debt as well. And then they look at the cash flows that they receive from the companies that they invest in. And then the all-important bit at the end is the is the selling price, which deter- determines the vast majority of their return on investment. And they want to get the biggest selling price possible. We'll get onto that in a second. I, you know, I've seen businesses that have been literally starved of investment. You know, asset-intensive asset businesses where the state of the assets, which you could look at from the accounts and also in the flesh, I'm not going to name the business, were absolutely shot to pieces. And this has been done because, um, you know, you, one, one form of private equity investing is, you know, is known as the leverage buyout, where you... <clears throat> load a business with as much debt as its cash flows can support or pretty close to that number and then run the business. So improve the efficiency, cut costs, cut investment, generate cash flow to pay down the debt and then look at a business that presents a business to a seller, potentially the stock market that is, artificially profitable because it's been starved of investment, starved of cost, and try and get someone to pay a very high price for it and walk away. That's a very cynical view, but one one that is backed up by plenty of plenty of evidence. And so, you know, you can end up as a private investor looking at at a business that once you once you buy it, you you know, you you've paid top price for it, so that's that's one of the really bad. What what sort of gets me about a lot of private private equity flotations is that you know the golden the old fashioned golden rule of any IPO is that you must that you would try and ensure a strong aftermarket in the shares to get investors to buy in. You know, you say, look, we'll, we'll leave something on the table so that if you buy. There's a chance that you know you you've got a reasonable chance of hopefully making some money from these shares. That seems to have, that mindset seems to have disappeared a very long time ago, where now the overwhelming objective is to maximise the value for the selling shareholder, which is the private equity owner. And clearly, some fund managers don't see this, and then they don't see the risk that actually the profitability of the business is artificial and that you need a lot of future investment because assets that should have been replaced have not been replaced. Um, Many personnel that you need to grow the business, you haven't invested in that, you haven't invested in training, in software. You just run the business for cash. Or even if you have invested you have invested, you have essentially tried to sell a cyclical business at the top of the cycle. 
and private equity investors have developed a canny knack of selling out at the top. And so personally, I wouldn't buy I wouldn't buy anything sold by a private equity because I believe that usually the price is too high um, and that, 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 that they are leaving very little on the table for me. And um, there also may be a bag of problems that, that come with it. We heard about Debenhams at the beginning of this, uh, this podcast. And my understanding there was that, you know, this was a business, a department store business backed by freeholds, the private equity owners sold those freeholds, put, put, the, put the stores on long lease holds um, uh, as the sort of shopping trend was turning against it. So, so you know, he, and, and also left it with a, a very large debt pile as it came to market. So, and, and, so, and, and, and exactly what you have talked about. Seems to have transpired here. Um, there, there are other examples that, that that we've seen more recently that I know you wrote about for the magazine. Aston Martin was uh, was a very interesting example. You wrote a very long piece before that came to market, essentially warning people off. What what were your worries about that situation at the time? Well, there just just seemed to be no justification whatsoever for um, you know the valuation of Aston Martin to to go at. You know, a massive premium to say something like Ferrari. Um, so, that, so there was that very simple pricing issue, but you know, there was a huge concern on the quality of the profits. Um, I, I, I took the view that Aston Martin's accounting, particularly of its development costs, it was basically capitalising virtually all its development expenditure. So the money that was spent on developing the designs of new cars um, was essentially not going through the income statement. It was going through the cash flow statement and getting shoved on the balance sheet. So whilst the, whilst the company was trying to show people that it was making a profit, its cash flows were awful. You know, there was a lot of cash actually flowing out the door here. And, you know... Arguably, you know, to, to capitalise development expenditure, you know, you have to have a reasonable assumption that that, that that expenditure will become profitable. And, you know, a company with a chequered history as Aston Martin had, um, I, I think that was a very brave assumption to make. So it's cash, cash flow awful. And don't also, its cash flows were flattered by upfront payments by perspective you know you, you have to wait wait a reasonable amount of time before you get your Aston Martin it's not like walking into a Volkswagen dealership and say oh yeah it'll be ready a week on Thursday you know you have to and you have to wait several months and buyers pay in, pay in advance and that goes through the cash flow it's not a profit until the sale is booked but it, it's cash flow so even with that cash flow looked awful. And I, I, the other thing that was from a business point of view that was so sort of waving a red flag was just a complete strain, um, change in strategy of the business. For, for me, you know, Aston Martin, the value or the perceived value in Aston Martin as a purchase was its exclusivity and scarcity. And you were taking something that was scarce and making it less scarce. And you were going into a market which they had no experience of before. And 
jumble all those concerns together and the utterly ridiculous valuation that was put on the shares, it just looked to me like a recipe for disaster. And this is obviously this was said without hindsight. This was looked, looking at the prospectus, looking at the figures that were in front of you and coming to that conclusion. And sadly, it's been proven right. Are there any businesses you've seen that have come out of private equity that you think, actually, that's OK? That, that, that was a decent business priced at a, a reasonable valuation when it came to market that, that has proved the doubters of the PE to IPO model wrong? It's a struggle. In terms of recent IPOs, pet, Pets at Home looks to be turning into quite a reasonable business with, with the veterinary side of it. But it's been a struggle. You know, it's taken a while. You know, if you look at the flotation price, um, the shares initially were underwater and they've got got back into positive territory now. And it seems that the way that the, the company is being run and the strategy is working out quite well. But, you know, it's taken it's taken time. Um, and I'm sure there are I'm sure there are some successes. I'm struggling, and you know I've I had a look you know I had a look before we came on this podcast and searched the archives of financial publications and so on, and you know looking at some of the studies that have been done into the performance of private equity IPOs, and they're not very good. It seems that the money the money is made off the stock market. You know, there are successful private equity transactions for private equity shareholders when they, you know, where they sell out privately, not on the stock market. You know, there are, there's plenty of evidence of that. If you look, say, for example, at some of the private equity funds that are out there, you know, there are, there are private equity funds that are making returns for their investors. But in terms of looking at, an example where there is a sale by a private equity to the stock market to and, and a public listing. It's quite hard. Was Ocado once upon a time was that private equity? I don't know, but that that's that took a long time to become a good investment. So the answer is I can't think of I can't think of many. And generally speaking. I would stay clear of anything being sold by private equity in an IPO. I mean, this sort of begs the question, and I spoke with Dave about um, the fall in the number of listed companies uh, on public markets. Is this a, a problem that is going to get worse? That that actually you either buy the uh, companies that private equity groups are floating, or you or you or your choice is essentially getting smaller and smaller and smaller all the time. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's. So what was it referred to as de-equitization, I think is the term. Yes, I think I think it is a trend that's likely to continue for, for for quite good reasons, really. I mean, you know, finance is cheap. You know, debt finance is cheap. Um, there are plenty of ways that you can access equity finance. You've got private equity. You know, wealthy wealthy benefactors. You can have you know even fund it from your own profits. You know, you retain profits. 
And, you know, I just look at it from a personal point of view. I've talked, you know, I've talked to people who have got, you know, quite recently, actually, private or people who are talking to people with private businesses and thinking, you know, flotation. And you just think, why on earth do I want to be quoted on the stock exchange? You know, it costs a lot of money. There, there are there are costs of running running a publicly listed company. Um, quite often, you don't get the kind of patient long term investment that you need. You are selling to people who essentially want a fast buck, who aren't prepared to back you. You are ceding control of your business and therefore potentially your business strategy. And a lot of the time, this is going to sound terrible, but you know, quite often the, the, the people who are investing in the shares don't actually understand what you're doing. They don't really understand what your business is about. They, they understand it superficially and see it as a bit of paper or a few numbers on a, on a screen that is going to make, make some money. They don't take the time or inclination, so this is some, not all, to really to really understand um they're doing and I, I base that I base that view from having talked to you know dozens of chief executives over the years um one of their key frustrations with you know going around and talking to so called professional investors is that a large proportion didn't really have a clue about how their business worked. And, you know, I, I would find that immensely frustrating as an owner and manager of a business to actually be ceding control of my business to people who don't really know or understand what you're trying to do. I mean, in, in that sense, you could almost argue that a private equity owner could be a better owner. They would take much more of a, an active interest in the company as long as they weren't pursuing a strategy of uh, essentially, as you say, running it for cash, almost asset stripping. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is this is the you know having having come from the cynical side at the start of this conversation. This is this is the potential positive side of of private equity ownership, is that they they can they can take a long term view if they if they. If and they can go in there, and they do go in there, and they invest, they improve, and you know they they make the businesses better. Yes, they may end up selling them, but they may then sell them up to another private private equity buyer, who usually, given the fact that people who who work in private equity are pretty savvy, very you know it attracts. Track some very clever people. There's no doubt about that. Usually, they'll be pretty, pretty, um, pretty smart buyers as well from another private equity seller. And so, yes, I can to- totally get the desire and the benefits of being away from the stock exchange, which is a very sad thing to say, given given that. Um, you know the stock market. A lot of us rely on the stock market to, uh, to you know, to fund our future, future living. And and you know, if good companies don't come to the market, and good companies, as we have seen, get taken away from the market, that makes it harder for for savers and investors to uh, to grow the value of their savings. 
we've talked in the past about uh, M&A uh, and looked at companies, uh, various M&A strategies. Presumably, some, sometimes those companies will be buying from private equity ownership as well. Is the same problem uh, afoot there? You know, when we're looking at companies buying other companies, do we need to be mindful of who they're buying from as well? Absolutely, yeah. And, um, you know, a company you and I have talked about quite a bit in the last sort of 12, 18 months is a great example of, of something which I, I think shows the risk, and that's restaurant groups' purchase of Wagamama, which just looks incredibly expensive. However way you want to look this, even you know before covid you were really scratching your head here, even with all the cost savings that they could bring in, how this company was going to make an acceptable return on investment because it had paid such a high price to the private equity seller. But the numbers that were coming Stop. out, the numbers that were coming out of Wagamama because of the private equity owner was obviously publishing those numbers looked pretty good. You know, this was a, this is a fast growing restaurant chain. And again, is that, is that sort of, dressing it up for sale uh, as part of the strategy? I think it's selling at the, an opportune moment. And, you know, let's be, let's be frank. The, since Restaurant Group took over Wagamama, um, the numbers continue to be quite good. And, in fact, very good compared to, compared to um, you know, what was going on elsewhere in the sector. And, you know, Wagamama, you know... I, is, you know, you talk to people who go and eat at Wagamama, uh, as, as I've done. It's not the sort of food that I like, but I know that people go there and they say it's good. So there is, you know, there, you know, is, there is a good business there from, from, the, from the customer's point of view, um, which is always what, you know, ultimately the driver of what you, what you hope to get, get from a long-term investment, something that, keeps customers happy generally if you if you're patient enough will keep shareholders happy but you make it difficult for yourself as an owner of that business if you pay too much for it in the first place it, it almost sounds like you know private equity are kind of the smartest guys in the room as it were should we be paying more attention to what they're doing to give us a, a cue for what what listed markets might be doing possibly I think, but I think you've also got to look at how they operate. I think you've got to look at it really on a deal by deal basis. Um, look at you know are they are they trying to earn their look and look at how they're trying to earn their return. You know, are they are they trying trying to earn their return by investing and getting growth, which is a which is what you want, or are they trying to invest and grow by cutting costs and running cash. And, you know, there are areas of the market such as tech where they are actually investing, investing in tech, investing in genuine growth. And I think that's where investors need to be looking at and trying to draw the lessons from that. And they need to be ignoring the other one. Um, you know, the classic example of that, the bad the bad part of it is it's like, Something like Unilever, for example, you know, where what what are we now? What three years ago when it was essentially Warren Buffett and private equity were trying to buy Unilever, and um, what Unilever has done 
since then has almost run its business as if it was run by private equity. Um, you know, cutting back the advertising costs, running the cash flow. And it's one of one of the one of the reasons why I'm quite lukewarm on Unilever in that what it really needs to be doing is investing in innovation in new products um, to generate sales growth. And the sales growth isn't there, but the profit growth is actually quite good because it's adopted things like zero zero cost budgeting on things like advertising you know, keeping a tight rein on investment and generating cash flow. That's great in the short term. But, you know, keep coming back to this in many of our discussions and things that you write about. I think one of the things that we're all looking for, the key ingredient every time when we're looking at investments is growth, the ability of a company to grow. Because this is this is where the value is. The value, the large chunk of value, is being create will be created through growth. So, you know, never get too far away from that that topic. And how, you know, how is this business going to grow? It's the same for a quoted business or a non-quoted business. Because those those are the lessons. The strategies and the approaches to, to getting growth is is where I think the key takeaways are for, for for investors in terms of identifying the next opportunity. Absolutely, uh, that's a good note to end it on. Cheers, Phil. Thanks, John. That is all we have time for on this week's podcast, I'm afraid. But before we go, let me just talk you through what else we've got in this week's issue. Um, We've obviously got Dave's uh, fantastic piece on private equity. But chiming back to last week's podcast, which was looking at the platform market, their cash holdings seem to have uh, caught the attention of the FCA. Mary McDougall is looking at uh, the missive from the regulator, which suggests they return uh, some of that cash. Um, Algy Hall in the stock screen has looked at contrarian value as well, uh, chiming with Phil's piece. Um, in the news section, we have another troubled retailer, Marks and Spencers, which is slashing 7,000 jobs as uh, clothing and home slumps again. Department stores do not look like the model of the future. We've looked at the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. I wonder whether it will help Restaurant Group and uh, Wagamama. Results are starting to quieten down now. We have all the usual tips and commenting with Simon Thompson, Chris Dillo. Mr. Bearble and Michael Taylor, who is looking at another company that uh, not too long ago looked like a busted flush, uh, De La Rue. And uh, we mentioned Ocado in the podcast. We're having a look at executive pay there in our No Free Lunch column. Thank you to all of our guests, uh, James Norrington, Tim Levine and Phil Oakley. Thanks, Dave, for your excellent hosting uh, this week in Megan's absence. Um, Pick up the magazine in all good news agents. The cover feature this week has also been written by Dave and James. Um, The trouble with ETFs, looking at whether these incredibly popular vehicles are actually becoming a destabilising force in financial markets. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Thank you very much for listening. Speak soon. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle.